0: welcome to the podcast this is hank fortner and thank you for joining us i have a wonderful guest to introduce you to today his name is science mike his last name is something else but i can't pronounce it and even if you see it written it takes you like seven seconds to phonetically announce it so we are just going to call him science mike he wrote a book called finding god in the waves that i emailed you all about recently and he we had a great conversation we had a conversation over skype that lasted a little while. So this conversation is about Science Mike and what he's discovered and how he's a person who lost his faith and then rediscovered it through science. So it's an incredible thing. No matter where you go with this conversation or how you respond to his thoughts or my thoughts or any of them, listen to the part that's right around the middle about when I ask him about doubt and faith and his perceptions around doubt and faith are my favorite thing. So please enjoy Mr. Science Mike. Please enjoy this conversation. I think you're gonna have a blast. For those of you who didn't get my email or who aren't a part of that, please join us. You can just text 66866 and text the name Hank and you can be added to our email list. Again, you just pick up your phone, not while you're driving in your Prius, but if you're on the Tube in London, Oh, internationally, I don't know if this works. Internationally, for those of you on the tube, I want you to just go to hankfortner.com and there's a spot right there where you can drop in your email and you'll receive all of our emails, emails about these podcasts as well as follow-on and supporting material and links, so check it out. Thanks so much for being a part of this. Really, really glad and grateful we get to do this. Please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Science Mike. You ever wonder what your life would be like? What will you wish you would have done? Get after
1: it already. What's life without a little adventure? We get one chance. Best live a big life. The exploration of the unknown. The hope for something more. This behavior can be classified as typically hazardous. I call it an adventure. Welcome. Let's get started, shall we?
0: Uh, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks so much. This is uh, well the first time I've had a, a podcast guest that joined over a Twitter conversation. <laughs> so thank you also, Jack Dorsey, for the uh, Twitter. As long as Twitter lasts, we're grateful that it brought us uh, together today.
1: I don't and Biz Stone. Can't think Jack and not think Biz. Right? Oh,
0: that's true. Yeah, we got to give Biz a <laughs> shout out as well. And and maybe Salesforce. Once uh, you know, maybe Salesforce will be will own Twitter shortly. Uh, or
1: or Disney.
0: That's true. That would be really cool. Or, you know, maybe Science Mike owns Twitter later. Maybe that's like, you, if you want to announce that, <laughs> that would be awesome. Uh, well, Mike, just to give you a little background, uh, as most of our listeners will know, our podcast today is called Typically Hazardous, and we focus on the information, insights, and inspiration necessary to live the adventures of our day-to-day life. And for so much of that, and part of the reason that I wanted to reach out to you is I so appreciate your work as a person who blends sort of the faith world with the science world and giving us the ability to keep our thinking hats on and our science hats on, as well as our faith hats on and believing that there is something beyond us and above us and that spirituality that's always within us. So uh, and most of our listeners will know that I am an amateur neuroscientist, so... Uh, to talk to you about uh, uh, to an actual scientist in these conversations is really really exciting uh, so I'm excited to dive in part of the things somewhere we kind of want to go and most of the listeners will know places I want to go Mike is I want to know where you got your name and I want to know about this book that you've put out that is already making ripples and waves um, all over the place and I keep getting people buy- keep people keep buying me copies of it and saying this guy, Mike, is, is who you need. You need this guy. So I'm excited to, to hear from you and sort of have this conversation. So thanks for being with us.
1: Uh, it's my pleasure. And let's start with where the Science Mike name came from with some really important context. And that is I am not a scientist.
0: Oh, it just you just you just ruined my day, Mike. What are I'm you talking about? I'm a science
1: about? enthusiast. Okay, okay. And I try to every chance I get, uh, every interview, every stage appearance, I am not, 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 not a scientist. Well, what is now, a scientist, really, Mike?
0: I mean, <laughs> let's talk about that for a second. If you're not a scientist, what, what's your definition of scientist?
1: Well, I'm not a I'm not a credentialed practicing scientist.
0: Okay. What would, uh, what
1: would it I require? to do test ideas scientifically. Okay. What's that? What would that
0: require to be credentialed?
1: No, just, you know? Y- usually you would be employed at a university or research institution of some kind doing scientific research professionally.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Um, so you can be – I'm a science enthusiast. I even – would go so far as a science communicator or educator okay cool not scientist
0: okay well according, uh, for example I like bill bu- nye I also would not your- consider
1: himself a scientist he's just a science, a science communicator
0: that makes sense that makes sense i don't want to like i'm not trying to mess with like your intro to all your speeches here but according to webster the definition of a scientist you've probably already read this is a person who is studying or has expert knowledge in one or more of the natural physical sciences so huh. I would interpret that as saying you are studying, a scientist, as a person who is studying these things, I will, I'm, gonna, I'm keeping you in the scientist category in my brain. <laughs> you do what you got to do, Science Mike, but I'm saying Mike the scientist because I want to, and part of this is, is selfish, I want to m- make my way to being a neuroscientist, so I've done a lot of defining. I don't want to have to get a PhD, so I've been doing a <laughs> lot of work. To sort of lower the bar so that I can I can just eke over it a little. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna blend you into that so that I can use you an example of like, hey, here's science, Mike. You know, no credentials, except he's using science to explain the world for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, you just don't want me operating on your brain or coming up with. Uh... Uh, uh brain science treatments, or I have hypotheses <laughs> exactly. about the brain. Uh,
0: that, that, Although notice. I do have a lot of
1: fun interpreting other people's work. That's, okay, that's, what
0: that's great. That's great. That's what I'll do. I'll be a, a neuroscience interpreter. That's great. There you go. Uh, so uh, tell me, Mike. You you know you um, uh, just recently came out with a new book called Finding God in the Waves, and uh, I've cruised through it and I have pumped through it since your publisher gave me a copy. And what I've so appreciated about your conversation is the way that you've had those two blend. Uh, but to me, the most compelling part about what you've written here that is so helpful, I think, for so many people who have both a, a faith um, orientation but also a skeptical mind, uh, tell us how, where this came from for you, and what was the sort of the impetus to writing this book?
1: Well, the impetus to writing the book was um, I kept having the same conversation over and over. Um, the material in the book, I didn't come up with to write a book. I came up with the material in the book for my own life. I, I grew up a Christian, and I became an atheist as an adult. And I had a mystical experience that didn't really cleanly fit in the skeptical, empiricist worldview I had it, at the time. And so I wanted to figure out, You know, when we talk about God, what are we talking about? Um, Can a person follow Jesus and kind of keep their intellect intact? Uh, It was a very personal struggle. And as I was going through it, I, I thought I was the only person having that struggle. When I started to share my story with other people one on one, not like blogging or podcasting or anything like that, just. One-on-one, I found other people would kind of open up to me about their own struggles and doubts, regardless of what their worldview was. And uh, that turned into blogs and podcasts and stage appearances. And in many cases, what I've studied about God and studied about physics and and neuroscience is quite broad and deep. And you can't talk about it in 25 minutes on stage or even an hour in a podcast. And so, to answer this question, how are you a person who views the world scientifically but believes in God and follows Jesus, uh, it took 288 pages to answer well. And it was really to save myself the time of answering the same, (laughs) you know, 50 or 60 questions over and over and over at events and and online. The book is almost a fact. Uh, told in narrative form. Uh, I started with the, the questions and needs I heard from an audience and just answered those from my own personal research. And that's how that book came to be. It's meant to be a resource for people who want to believe in God, who have some longing for God, but a scientific view and skepticism keeps them from doing so. What is fascinating to me is that has ended up only being part of the audience for the book. Uh, What many people get from that book is to understand the outlook or the mind of someone who sees the world differently than they do. So uh, a lot of atheists read the books to understand how Christians see the world, and a lot of Christians read the book simply to understand atheists better. And so what the book has ended up doing is more than just being a personal story to help other people going through the same journey, it's become a a reference frame, a set of common language for groups with very different outlooks on the world and different understandings of how things happen to have better conversations and to understand each other better. And that's something I didn't expect, but I've been really pleased to see.
0: How did your, did your journey as a person who believed in God and a person who was raised in that sort of Christian faith space, what was the impetus for you becoming an atheist? How did you make that transition?
1: And I imagine... And be, screaming, really.
0: Okay, because I imagine becoming an atheist would be a lot like... Uh, in, did you grow up in the South? Or, I'm trying to listen to your, to your accent and try to... Oh, I'm a, yes,
1: I'm a Southerner. I uh, grew up in North Florida... Which is is more like South Georgia than South Florida.
0: <laughs> okay, so and, uh, I imagine that in South Georgia or South Florida, you would, um, it would be a lot like coming out as gay would be the same thing as saying like I'm an atheist now. I don't believe in anything that this whole world is sort of founded on. What? How do you? How did you go through that experience, and what really drove you to make that leap?
1: Well, I, I wouldn't compare it to the coming out experience. Um, Really, I mean, there's there's some there's some uh, potential risk to life and liberty uh, for people who make that transition that mm. that isn't really comparable to. You risk social ostracization when you tell people you don't believe in God anymore. Uh, people who come out, you know, on on different sexual identities face the risk of physical violence pretty significantly. Wow. Um, so. But, you know, it, it was a, a terrifying thing, terrifying enough that I didn't tell anybody at first. Didn't, I didn't tell anybody for two years. You know, I, I, um, I became an atheist mainly through Bible study. Uh, I, I had a situation in my life. My dad, who was a, a, a minister in the Baptist church, music minister, um, had an affair and was leaving my mom. And I wanted to search the Bible to understand what God would have to say about this situation so I could kind of help my dad. See the right way to approach this, and uh, it was in that intense Bible study that I found more questions and contradictions and things that um, led to my first kind of fledgling doubts that the way I understood God might be incorrect, and and that led to a search to understand God better, not to disprove God, Uh, and and what happened over and over is when I would face some question in Scripture or some logical contradiction in, you know, theology, that uh, skeptics and atheists seem to have better answers to those quandaries than theologians or apologists. And um, I just gradually, piece by piece, lost my faith until I realized one day that I didn't believe at all anymore, which is very scary. Because if you've grown up in a religious context, especially one of the more conservative and personal religious traditions, uh, especially in Protestantism, uh, you, you kind of approach God as, as something like a friend only more than a friend. So, there's a, a real sense of personal bonding mm. and affection. And when you realize that this entity doesn't exist, there's a, there's a grief that goes with that, very mm. much like a death. So, if you'd imagine finding out about a death but not being able to tell anyone and just trying to internalize that grief, you start to understand the plight of people who've grown up in very religious contexts and suddenly find that they don't believe what they once did it is very, very frightening.
0: Hmm. And so interesting to me that it was through Bible, through studying the Bible that you were like, I just don't think this thing is here. I mean, so many times you would think people use the scriptures sometimes as a way to help a person see who God is. But in your case, it was actually the scriptures that gave you uh, an understanding that God wasn't who you thought he was, huh?
1: It, it absolutely it was the scriptures more than anything else wow um and and in fact after i came back to my faith for a long time i couldn't read the bible because it, it I, I had been so traumatized by that experience a couple of paragraphs then i would find myself questioning even my new uh much less defined ideas about god hmm. in, in the face of the bible
0: So you're an atheist, you come out as an atheist to your family, and how does does everybody respond? How does your community respond to you saying, hey, I'm not there? How did you tell them?
1: My family was very gracious, Um, more gracious than I expected. Um, My larger community, I didn't tell them until after I kind of had this weird reconversion experience. Okay. Only I didn't... um, I didn't have any formalized theology i, I just sort of like well there i think there's this thing god i don't know what it is or who it is but it's something and that's when i finally told everybody and that was uh that was tough um my my larger community i lost a lot of friendships that still haven't come, come frankly most most people i knew in those days i don't i don't really know anymore
0: Wow. Um, Be, because of their choice or yours? They lost the friendship because of they, they didn't know how to well, handle it? Well, there's some or... people
1: that, that the only way we could talk was for them to tell me, you know, I was uh, a heretic or an apostate or whatever. And we couldn't talk about what our kids were doing. All we could talk about is how I needed to come back to like a right understanding of God. And those those people I sort of just quit calling. And then other people were were, were polite, but... Uh, more distant, and just sort of faded away. Hmm. That's what happened with most people. Um, and th- there's some some relationships I really tried to invest in and and pull along, and I just found it was um, it's like trying to carry water in your hands. Hmm. You know, you can if you stand very still, uh, it will slowly drain. But the more you move, the faster faster it kind of splashes hmm. out and falls through your fingers.
0: And do you yeah. look, do you look back as that at that as sort of like shedding of an old skin, or does that still, do you, you do you still feel the loss of those relationships? Like I feel like people who are listening, all of us go through these sort of evolutions or these reinventions of our lives or growth, or we take that next step in our life. And it, I think there's a there's a mindset or at least a sort of this fantasy maybe in our mind that. The people we love will always love us and we will all, and they're for us and for us evolving and for us growing. And it's sort of a stark awakening when you realize that those people sometimes are not for you exploring and not for you growing and not for you evolving. Uh, what is it like when you lose those relationships or when you step away from some of those relationships? Do you still feel the loss of that or are you in a place where you feel like, hey, that was a necessary part of this process for me?
1: It was necessary for me and necessary for them. Mm. I've fully grieved it. I've come to terms with it. I think most of those people, if you would say, you know, what do you think about Mike McCarg? They would say, "Oh, I love him so much. I'm real concerned for where he's ended up." You know what I mean? They wouldn't be uh, uh, right, vicious, but they wouldn't they wouldn't disparage me. They would just say they're they're concerned for where I am today. Um, and th- and that's kind of what I've learned is. As we grow, sometimes it's necessary for some relationships to to kind of fade. Would um, you
0: say that that's even a sign of growth?
1: Gosh, I don't know.
0: Like an indicator that you're that you're moving and that you're growing.
1: I think it can be.
0: Okay.
1: I th- I think we need to be careful when we see we find we're losing a lot of relationships because uh, that can happen because you're growing and learning, but it can also happen because you're kind of becoming unhealthy. Yeah. Or you're going uh, crazy. So, yeah, you really want to carefully check your motivations and and um, and how open you are to in safe and trusted relationships to um, hearing difficult truths about yourself. I mean, that's kind of that was the lighthouse for me. Is there are some very close relationships that have remained consistent through this period, and then I've also made new friends who. Um, have been through their own struggles, and there's a level of intimacy and authenticity and vulnerability in those relationships that makes it actually easier to kind of talk to each other about life trajectories and relationships and and those sorts of things.
0: Uh, Before I get to the what brought you back to God, your first morning you wake up as an atheist, as a person who doesn't believe that God exists or is out there or is that personal friend. What changed about your life? Like, you wake up in the morning and you're an atheist that day. Did anything change? Was breakfast more bland and stale? Did you feel a loss? What were you experiencing in your day-to-day life? Did anything change in the way you saw people or saw yourself?
1: I felt an acute sense of loss, and I basically became a nihilist for a while. I didn't see how my life or anybody's life had any purpose. I didn't see, you know, where morality came from, um pretty hard to get out of the bed in the morning, really hard to go work a day at the office. Um, a- absolutely, everything seems stale and dull and bland. Uh, part of that was that my whole life had been based on God as the center of, of all creation, and, and for a Christian, it's, it's, our, it's our job to sort of center our lives on God's will and God's commandments. So, I felt very unmoored, almost like a, a ship without the sea. <laughs> what's, hmm. the, what's the purpose? Uh, but in time, as I, as I kind of grieved and studied, I felt smarter because without trying to force scientific insights through the kind of conservative evangelical theology I'd grown up with, I find it easier to understand difficult ideas in physics uh, or cosmology and so that there was a very odd sensation of feeling like I was learning more about the world very rapidly because maybe some of my old assumptions had been wrong, which led to kind of an excitement that ultimately led to a very great period in my life where I replaced the meaning I got through religion with a meaning that I selected myself through humanism. And um, I actually was a very content humanist. And uh, humanism actually was so satisfying that I, I kind of gave up any search for God because I found that sense of meaning and purpose and direction in, in secular philosophy, which was a <laughs> something, you know, I would have never believe. He you have told me when I was 19 that at some point I would be a secular humanist, you know, I, there's no way I would have believed that, but it, it was a period of my life.
0: And then, what what brought you to this place? You're a secular humanist who is dealing with these sort of the loss of God and sort of the what's the point? But and you know, ending up in this sort of inspiring space of secular humanism. And what got you to the place where you sort of re-experienced or, in your words, reconverted to to God?
1: Well, it's you know, If you've never heard of my work. Um... Let me tell you first of all I've had a cat scan I don't have a brain tumor <laughs> I've undergone a full battery of psychological tests because no one thinks this what I'm about to say sounds nuttier than me uh, but I heard Jesus talk to me um, at a at a at a conference and that was really bewildering for me like a christian conference or like a secular humanist conference or it was em- a christian conference but it wa- it was a conference of christians <laughs> <laughs> okay. so they were there to talk about creativity it wasn't like a theologically centered event okay and so i went to this conference and they ended up doing the eucharist at the end of it which kind of made it very much a christian conference which i very cynically responded to right 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 it's like had this really great experience and now they're doing like what youth groups do to cement a mountaintop experience at camp or whatever, and um, I was going to shake the hand of uh, the person leading the event, and he instead kind of held the bread out to me, and that's I heard that voice, I heard Jesus speak to me, and it was bewildering and confusing, and and what did Jesus say? Uh, it's a super long story, but I. I well, I heard uh, I was there when you were eight and I'm here now Wow uh, and I was a bullied kid and during recess I would always kind of stay in the trees at the edge of the playground and pray because Jesus listened to me and Jesus didn't make fun of me and um, so it kind of called back to that feeling of safety and security and uh, and the really unbelievable thing that that name, that person who'd got me through my childhood, I no longer believed in. And so to hear that voice. Um, create a lot of cognitive dissonance. Sure. And so I went out on the beach that night to kind of figure out where I was with God and prayed a really accusational prayer. And... Um, then I saw a light, like uh, that I could see as much as feel, and felt like time kind of stopped. And I was uh, only only words I can use. I was in the presence of God. Wow. And
0: and it, was it a presence that you recognized? Just sort of like the voice? Do you feel like it was a? It
1: was no voice at this point.
0: Okay, but the voice that you heard, that you were the, that that was Jesus's voice. Did that sound like your voice? Did it sound like a voice you'd? communicated no, with beforehand no. or was it a nope. b- brand new voice
1: Brand new voice
0: wow and that light same story same that presence of god is that a place you'd been before or was that new
1: no i'd never experienced anything like that wow um it was uh, very bright very warm uh as soon as i sort of saw the light which i saw it wasn't like a light in the sky it was like a light shining through reality itself wow I, um, there's metaphors about as good as I can do here. <laughs> great, sure. sure. Um, and you know, I felt this profound sense of warmth and love and peace, and I became aware of how much God loved me. And then just moments later, how much God loves everyone. and I just kind of sat in the presence of that love for an indeterminate period of time before I found myself standing on the beach again. Wow. So, I mean, that's nutty. That's crazy. I, I went back, to, and you went, went and had a, right had a CAT scan right away. Yeah, I went when I got home. I um, I told my my wife and my mom about the experience, which they saw as a miracle, and uh, I kind of played along with that, but I also had concern that maybe I had brain cancer. <laughs> uh, that you'd had so some that. neurological event that was that you I'm sure, you're sure you could explain. Right. So I went and saw my neurologist and. I said, I saw this light, really bright light, and we need to image my brain. And we did. And you
0: came back clear. 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 So then you have this experience that you you knew immediately that it was God.
1: I don't have any other word for something like that than God.
0: And then that set you on a path to explore your faith again or was did you feel like that was an isolated moment because i have friends and even people listening on the podcast who have communicated to me that they had moments like these and then didn't uh experience that again but they point back to these moments like particularly i have a friend who said that it was jesus who came to him when he was when he overdosed but currently doesn't can't, couldn't find an expression in the world that reflected that event that he had so it leaves oh, sure. him in this place, right? so I think the most the the most fascinating journey for me is that you had this moment, which I experience with almost every person that I talk to, even when I talk to a person who says they're an atheist um i was on I just got off this tour, and in the conversation, a guy at lunch, them knowing my background and that I have a spirituality podcast, and so on. this guy goes, "I'm an atheist," and I said, "Wow I was like i've." only met a couple of you. And he's like, no, there's lots of atheists. I go, there's not a lot of people who are willing to commit 100% that God does not exist. I said, even Stephen Covey himself is saying that there's intelligent design somewhere out there. And I said, and I asked him, I said, have you ever had an experience? And he goes on to, expl- to share an experience, uh, not unlike yours, where he felt a presence in his life. And then on his next steps to look for that, couldn't find any evidence that that experience is actually, is manifested anywhere in the world in any real way. Um, which led him to believe that he was, he was crazy, or he had a moment that, that must not have been real. So, does that make sense? I'm sure you hear this a lot. It makes a lot of sense. What, what, was, your, <laughs> what was your next step then, that um, sort of kept you in the game, so to speak, in terms of, of reclaiming your faith?
1: Well, I still had all the, the same objections to Christian theology, and even basic theism that I had before I saw that light. It didn't answer any of the questions I had. So I wanted to see, like, what when we talk about God, what are we talking about? We're typically talking about God created the universe. God, God sustains the universe. Those are pretty much universal claims about God across all religious traditions. So I thought, well, where can I find that? Who studies that? And that was physics, quantum physics at the mm-hmm. small scale and cosmology at the large. And so I wanted to see, is there any room in in these ideas for what happened to me on the beach? And I certainly found uh, some ideas about uh, kind of the mystery from which we emerge and, and, and continue. And it let me start using the word God less self-consciously, but it didn't make me eat a theist much less a Christian <laughs> right sure um, so I, I started wondering well how how can I as a person experience this impersonal abstract ground of being like I did on the beach and uh, I started studying all kinds of different things but ultimately it was I stumbled across a neuroscience paper that led me down a, a deeper line of research into brain science, uh, where I kind of discovered how human brains respond to God and, and how some ways that's a very unique uh, set of behaviors and, and states that happen in the brain uh, when we contemplate things spiritual and things divine. And I also found through that process that contrary to what I'd understand through atheism, that the practice of faith can be quite good for people, good for their brains. Good for their memory and focus and concentration, their stress. Um, So, pragmatically, it wasn't a waste of my time to practice my faith, pray while I was trying to figure out who or what God was. And it was in that um, pragmatic, scientific approach to justifying my faith, still searching for what it was on the beach, that I discovered. Uh, what neuroscience has to say about mysticism, that in fact, the most powerful experiences we have with God don't involve our brain's language centers, that, that don't pair especially well with our brain's logical facilities. And um, I learned to sit with spiritual experiences mystically through neuroscience and to not work so hard to pin them into a rhetorical understanding. But keep them as lived experiences, as feelings, as um, a knowledge that is found through a love, but is not a fact claim. And this is this is all really weird sounding stuff if you've never studied mysticism. But um, you know, every faith tradition in the world has its mystics, and that includes Christianity. And um, it was kind of in that place that my faith started to. Uh, put down roots again, instead of being something I was kind of toying around with, started to become uh, very much a part of who I am and um, how I orient myself to reality.
0: So then what I want to do um, with the rest of this now, because I find it fascinating that it was that sort of mystical experience that led you back down the roads you had been down at some point, but just in a different way or in a different lane. And how I want to uh, approach sort of the next conversation with you is, if it's possible, and you tell me if this is possible, uh, I'd love to give you a couple of categories of things that people who, friends of mine, listeners of the podcast, Uh, even myself, wrestle with these things. Um, Is it possible to give us like a couple minute answers for each of the way? Not like a full apologetic on these things.
1: I don't do apologetics, so that's really easy.
0: Beautiful. Okay, I don't (laughs) want you to defend these things. I want you to just tell us how you got to a place.
1: um, I'll tell you my opinion on anything.
0: Well, lovely. Okay, that's what I'm looking for. Okay, so the first would be the Bible. And I would say, and I know you cover so many of these things in the book, and if you're listening, you've got to get a copy of this book, whether it's not just for you to kind of go through and have language around some of these things, but for the people in your life and even for friends who wrestle with some of these things. So I'm hoping, Mike, you can give us a little bit of a teaser for each one of these. When it comes to the Bible, you go from an atheist who uh, really became an atheist because of the Bible. How do you then return to it and sort of believe the words of the scriptures, or where do you place the words of the scriptures in terms of your personal reality?
1: I realized, long story short, that the problem I had was not with the Bible at all, but how I was taught to read it. So in my faith tradition, the Bible is considered of my youth is is considered infallible and inerrant. Basically means that it's a memo. That God dictated to a bunch of administrative assistants that we call the Bible's authors. That every word in the Bible is God's. And because of that, it speaks completely accurately to history, to science. That it represents a comprehensive description of God's plan for humanity. And that all moral law can be derived from it. That the Bible is you know, the ultimate constitution for how our lives should be. Um, and that it was, you know, a biography of man and God's relationship written by God.
0: Yeah. And as you're saying these words, there's probably the audience is probably split into half. Half of the people <laughs> are like nodding, like, yes, amen, yes, mm hmm, mm hmm. And it, it gives them a warm feeling in their chest that you're describing. That there is a, a north star in the universe that doesn't move, and that is the Bible. And then there's another half of the people listening who, like, their stomach is turning in ways that uh, is nauseating, and they might be pulling over in their Prius right now just to catch their breath. Yes. Uh, so, where did you end up?
1: I learned that the Bible seems to contain contradictions because the Bible does contain contradictions that uh, the Hebrew Bible is understood by rabbis to be an ongoing discussion and debate about the nature and character of God by his followers. And very similarly, the New Testament includes different factions kind of lobbying for their theology to become the dominant theology of the church. All of these people had their experience with God, just like you just described. So many people you know have had some experience with God. And so these people then spoke of a bush that burned but was not consumed with fire or a blinding light on the road to Damascus. They took the experience and tried to explain it to others in the context of their culture's faith story. Remember, ancient cultures didn't have an individualistic understanding of identity. They had a communal understanding of identity, very different from modern people. And when you read the Bible that way, you see a a library of books, not one book, but a library of books written over more than 1,500 years, starting 3,500 years ago, that tell us the stories of people working, struggling to understand and follow God exactly as we do today. So, it, it is just as messy, and contradictory as its authors. It contains history we understand to be wrong, science we understand to be wrong, but perfectly reflective of that day. Now, and it, I find so, that incredibly helpful. Yeah, that's it's
0: almost liberating it, to take the pressure off of it to be 100% right. I mean, if you were like, because now you've got to get the world to line up with something that the Genesis account, for instance, and the argument about a seven-day creation period. Or, you know, you're burning so much energy trying to get them in line, the way you've described it, it's almost as if it gives people permission to sort of take a deep breath and read it as it is, as opposed to read it in a way they have to defend.
1: Well, and there's so many beautiful things that teach us that we would never even use the categories of right and wrong to discuss, you know, is, is, is the... Is the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel right or wrong? Is is Van Gogh's Starry Night right or wrong? It's a ridiculous question. These are works of art that help us view the world through the lens of another eyes and in doing so, learn more about ourselves. And it's that same gift we're given over and over in the pages of Scripture to understand how we've changed, but also... Universal themes of longing and searching that have been around as long as we've told stories about God.
0: Okay, so if so, with that perspective, then when you find a word and a phrase in the Bible about, let's say, not getting drunk, or if you find a phrase in the Bible about loving your neighbor, when you are, you, do you still inform your life by those scriptures, or do you take it as these are not commands; these are just the way that those people needed that information for now, but I can sort of choose contextually or culturally how to live my life.
1: Everything in the Bible has a cultural context. Every word in the Bible was written by a specific author to a specific audience with a specific agenda. And I'm not doing the text any honor if I don't do my best to uncover all those details as I read it, to read it as best as I can in as similar a context as I can to the audience for which that scripture was intended. And we do that all the time. Everyone, even the most conservative Christian fundamentalist in the world, has some lens by which they choose what parts of the Bible apply to them today and which ones do not. That's true if they wear polyester or mixed fabric clothing. That's true if they eat shellfish. There are all these things in the Bible that, that people don't adhere to, and they've had some way of reading the text that exempts them from that. And so I just kind of skip that whole process and realize that none of the Bible is intended to me as a modern American person in a constitutional sense, um, but it's meant to show people wrestling with how to best embody God's love to other people. Uh, so in, in that lens... I evaluate scripture for how it helps me to embody love, to be what Jesus said the primary commandment was in the scriptures, uh, is to love God and to be a good neighbor. Uh, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? It tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And that's the primary lens by which I process all scripture, is how am I transformed into a good neighbor?
0: Wow, that's cool. Okay, so that takes care of the scriptures.
1: We got In, really Bible nerdy there. We got guess. super,
0: I know, some people are listening, they're like, dude, what is this about? Like, But it's all right, we'll come back up for air a little bit. But we'll dive a little bit into another category, which is... You pro- while you became an atheist, you probably stepped away from church. Would that be accurate?
1: I stepped away from church after I came back to faith.
0: <laughs> oh, you did? Oh, good. Oh, that's even <laughs> I better. Did. Okay, so you have uh, one of the chapters in your book that's called, uh, thank you, Hoser, called Take Me to Church.
1: That's actually a Sinead O'Connor shout out. Oh, is it? Okay, good. Well, it then
0: is. I'll we'll take it back from Hoser. But what, uh, in the Take Me to Church, how did you sort of, uh, deal with a faith community now that you had what would be considered, you know, uh, you know, um, opposing agreements or understanding of kind of who God is and where the scriptures live in your life. What was that process like for you to re-engage in church? Because I think there's people listening who have had like a uh, a, a strange—I keep experiencing a larger growing and growing and growing population of people who have had an incredible God experience at that mystical level like you described— have an extraordinary desire to connect to God at a spiritual level in their daily life and have a really hard time connecting with what is the current cultural expression of church. So curious for you, what was that like for you, your relationship to church and how did that change as your your faith grew?
1: I think if you've left the church, you have to recognize how much trauma or grief was involved in that process and you have to go through an appropriate amount of grief before you can contemplate a healthy communal religious expression for me that was a lot of therapy that was a lot of Sundays where I ate waffles with my children on Sunday mornings I had to get the space to recover from the hurt and the sense of loss that came with losing my whole community I mean, it's incredibly traumatic um, and then when I started to kind of get this longing to gather with people on Sunday mornings I went to a lot of churches, and they, they all felt wrong for one reason or another. A lot of that came back down to still uh, scar tissue in my psyche. They would, they would hit raw places in my past. And I kind of finally found a church that really felt good and felt healthy for me, felt healthy for the family. And through that process, I realized that there is no church that's right for everybody. There isn't. There is no church that's right for everybody. You've got to find a community that can accept and affirm you exactly as you are, that isn't coercive, that doesn't have an agenda, that's not trying to get you to change in some specific way. Um, You know, if you're gay, I I wouldn't recommend going to a church that uh, would try to convince you that this core part of your identity is a sin, for example. Uh, but everyone has something in their life that that is in them causes flourishing, but in the eyes of some community is sinful. So you've got to find a church that can accept you and affirm you just like you are. But if that's all it is, if a, if your church is nothing but affirming, you've got a country club, right? So for a church to be a church, it also has to challenge you to become who you need to become. And I would kind of add an unscientific caveat to that. It should challenge you to become God is drawing you to be and once you have both of those things in a faith community now you have something that can really be a source of life and growth for you that can help you be a source of life and growth for other people. Church is not a self-help temple Church is a way that we are transformed together as a community to help other people find healing That's great So where do you go to church now? A uh, Good Samaritan United Methodist Church. Cool. In what city? Where do you live? Tallahassee, Florida. Tallahassee. And we have we have science Mike pilgrims every week these days. <laughs> amazing,
0: amazing. Uh, that's great. Now, now, as as you're describing, sort of the, your explanation of the Bible and your explanation of church, um, the sort of the last category I go to before we um, we we go into just a sort of like spitfire of questions is. For you, how do you process sort of who the who the God you know is and the God that... So I'll talk a little bit more about like the who God is. And I was just having a conversation actually recently um, on the plane the other day, yesterday as a matter of fact, with a person who said that um, she felt like God sometimes does things to her to strengthen her for other things. And I sort of like would lean more towards God being the, God is the pure and the good and the light and all the bad things that happen in the world. He makes good out of those things. So as a person who was an atheist, moves into being a person of faith, what do you do with some of the descriptions of God that uh, are primarily in the, in the uh, Hebrew scriptures that would describe th- things or describe him as sort of a violent, bloodthirsty, um, almost vindictive creature does that make sense? Um, it does. Yeah. So there's there would be probably more passages than not in the Hebrew Scriptures that would describe things like uh, that people should be put to death. How many verses are of that? Or uh, there would be death to non-believers, sort of a very like uh, jihadist type thing. Where in Second Chronicles, for instance, there's a passage that says, "All who seek not the Lord, the God of Israel, were were to be put to death, whether they were man or woman, small or great." So those kinds of phrases or those kinds of things, I think some of the struggle that I've encountered with people is to saying it almost feels like God is terrible to a lot of people throughout a lot of the Hebrew scriptures. Does that inform the God that met you on the beach, or is that the other side of who God is? The God who would ask Abraham to sacrifice his son, the God who would kill in Leviticus for people who were adulterous, the God who would you know does that make sense who would bring a sword and bring death and bring blood uh and invite genocide in that sense like how do you connect that god or i have a very good friend named matt who's going to join the podcast pretty soon who is convinced that the god of the old testament the god of the new testament is a different one because it just (laughs) yeah like he was either a different personality or different thing and there's so many passages that are so um in my mind, almost indefensible and disturbing that God would kill entire tribes, including children and animals. And how would you, how do you balance that now into who you are and in your faith? Um, because so much of, I think, what an atheistic perspective is, is going, uh, I have a, a very good friend who told me, he said, if that's your God, you need to fire him and get a new one. Um, because he's just not going to do the job for you. But if you can find me a different one, I'm in. And he came from a Hebrew faith and would look at this and go, I've heard too many of these stories and I just don't believe in that God that's terrible and also benevolent at the same time. Where do you, where do you balance that in your life and, and, and lean on when it comes to actually the who God is?
1: So here we are, uh, Homo sapiens, uh, a, a species of primate, that is particularly clever and whose brains build models of reality with unprecedented complexity when compared to our brothers, sisters, and cousins in the animal kingdom. Unprecedented complexity. 86 billion neurons in the human brain. And they're conscious. Well, what is consciousness? The best scientists in the world today contemplating these problems think of consciousness As a story, the brain tells itself that it is aware of itself telling. So that's our consciousness. And what our brain is doing is, driven by evolution, trying to create a good enough model of reality for us to survive. Not to uncover truth, not to have a great rational grounding, but to tell ourselves a story that helps us to survive. And neuroscience tells us that one of the most powerful ideas a human can have, one of the things most adept at shaping their identity, is their belief about God. But our model of reality, complex and intricate though it may be, is by necessity limited compared to actual reality. When we even get to ideas which are well understood in the sciences today, quantum physics, for example, even something more universally accessible like atomic theory, what the math tells us about reality is not accessible to the storytelling machine of our mind. And so we have to create metaphors to describe an actual reality. And depending on what you're studying, different metaphors about atoms or electrons may work better to help you understand that particular facet of a mathematical reality. Well, that's just electrons. So here we come to this idea of God, ultimate reality, what some theologians would call a ground of being or being itself. And can there be any wonder that with over 11 billion people who've lived on this earth, that there have been different models of that same God? That people have adapted an understanding of God that helped them to survive and thrive in their context? Can it be any wonder that in a tribal society where the favor of God was understood as military might and conquest, that a story was written that described God as the one who let us take this land from others? But if you study the story of that text, you learn that those passages were written Many years later, when the nation of Israel was in exile, that it was poetry, a story to understand that God does have favor on our people, and if we return to him, he will return us to greatness in the language of that era, archaeologically speaking. It appears that the much-ballyhooed conquest of, of the land of Canaan didn't involve genocide whatsoever, but a number of small regional skirmishes. So, I understand that God, in God's greatness and infinite mystery, and dare I say love, gives us the idea we need to follow and serve in our context. And for my friends who would say that that's not a biblical idea, I would argue there is nothing more biblical because God begins in Genesis as a man who walks in a garden, who speaks to the first of creation, Then God becomes a bush that burns and speaks existentialist philosophy and a pillar of cloud and fire and a spirit dwelling within a temple and then is incarnate in a man, a man who leaves the surface of the earth, and then this unimaginable spirit returns. Only now every person is the temple. There is nothing more biblical than new ideas about God that tell God's story in a new human era. So,
0: in essence, when they're describing God as this particularly unpleasant, (laughs) terrible person, or who's inviting people to kill if they're unbelievers, or kill if they are, you know, violent to others, or kill if they're adulterous, or kill if they're homosexual, God didn't actually do that? Or that was just their way of explaining why we killed those people?
1: That is what happens when atheists use the same lens to study the Bible as fundamentalists, a lens which is not ancient, which is only a few hundred years old. No one thought of history like we think of history today in the ancient world. No one, no one, the way you articulated an argument, an understanding, a perspective was through historical narrative. Um, so it was never a fact claim, in the way we think of a fact claim. There was no such thing in in ancient times. The world was sort of imbued with with magical ideas.
0: But what would be the purpose? What would be the purpose of explaining, of t- of saying things like that? Sound very jihadist. I mean, people, the things that people are are afraid of in terms of radical Islam sounds a lot like that. Chronicles passage. Of that. Because they
1: understood. Well, so Chronicles is a different thing than the Old Testament, right? you got to remember the context of the New Testament was people living under the thumb of Roman oppression, which was one of the most brutal empires in human history. Not the most, but one of uh, who, if you failed to pay your taxes or, or a couple people, you know, were rabble rousers, the Roman army would come and simply raise your civilization, flatten it to the ground every man, woman, and child. And so you have these people living in that context, wrestling with what it means to serve God under an empire that crushes you. And so if you impart divinity into the text, that God is speaking from some flawless or perfect perspective to people through the text, then of course it's apparent. But if instead you understand that people are wrestling with what it means to be just in that society— It sounds a lot like today when Americans discuss Black Lives Matter. What is the right way to be just in our context today? If you were to record Twitter, (laughs) just religious Twitter, and print it in a book and say it's the word of God, you would get a terrible picture of God. But if instead you said, these are people trying to understand what is right, what is best, and what they believe God wants, the text is liberated and freed, I believe very strongly that maybe the worst way to read the Bible is with that kind of a – it is that approach that leads to jihadism, that this text makes these absolute claims about God's nature or character, instead of that the divinity of the Bible is revealed only through its humanity.
0: Got it. No, that makes sense. That makes sense, because <laughs> I think that's helpful to give people a context and a conversation for how to justify these things. Because if if you, it's probably most alarming to hear these words from Chronicles, uh, and be a person who holds the Bible as the literal words and inerrant words. Because you go, well, I guess right. God changed his mind about killing every homosexual and unbeliever. And I guess God changed his mind about these things. And again, I'm using these and I know there's people listening. I'm g- drastically oversimplifying these verses for the sake of just asking the question about the way people would perceive and and, and, and,
1: and we And even today when we say we're impartial, go read the same news event in CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News.
0: Right, right.
1: Now put all three of them in a paper together and say it's God's word.
0: Yes, right.
1: It's going to be really confusing. Right. Right. Uh, so, that, that's what we do with this library of books in the Bible. You have literally, like, there was a pretty significant conflict between Peter and James, who both knew a historical Jesus, and Paul, who did not, about the very nature and character of Christ and what the resurrection meant. Like, the church began amidst that kind of fundamental disagreement, and we wrote it down. It's called the New Testament.
0: Yeah, wow, that's amazing. Well, Mike, what I really appreciate about your work and about what <laughs> and you and I do, want to
1: apologize to people who are not deeply <laughs> religious. I'm usually a lot more accessible than this. No,
0: this is great, and it's fun because I, I think I have
1: any question people ask. <laughs> I have
0: the dual podcast. I have the dual podcast audience. So I have the people who have never been to church before, and I get a lot of your their emails. And then I have a lot of people who've heard me give talks at a church for years, and so they're listening. So Grant, we've probably gained a lot of subscribers in this conversation. I've probably lost a few. So I'm going to say goodbye to those who are so deeply offended and wondering what strange hole I've gone down and others who are like, wow, this is refreshing. So you just can't uh, make everybody happy. Uh, so I would say a couple of things I want to ask you about, Mike, and then I want you to just sort of tell us or rather I'll tell people Uh, where I think they should connect with you afterwards, and then you can give us the last word, is uh, for you in your life right now, what is inspiring to you right now?
1: So much. This is a question about what do I say, but like, how do I narrow it down?
0: Sure. Or what's the first thing that comes to mind if I'm like, what's inspiring you right now?
1: Uh, The first thing that comes to mind is... uh, Racial justice advocates. So that's where I went first. Wow. People, people are trying to create peace in the world in what I view as a very first century way. Um, there, there's some amazing work happening right now.
0: That's beautiful. Uh, for you, when you uh, do, you still currently in your life. I'm, I imagine you still have moments of doubt or moments of um, questions. What do you do with doubt? What do you do with questions right now in your life in this? Doubt's stage? my best
1: friend. Doubt is. Yeah. Doubt used to be bad and dangerous because it had a fear, but now I know doubt is just how I test ideas. So I invite doubt in, I crack open a beer, we share it, and uh, we enjoy trying to get to the bottom of something.
0: Amazing. What kind of beer does doubt drink?
1: Uh, doubt's really up for whatever you are. <laughs> okay. Yeah.
0: kinda. He, he just he's, He'll have one of what he's having.
1: All um, doubt wants to do is ask some questions, and questions aren't dangerous.
0: That's beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, For you, what do you feel like is the current adventure that you're on?
1: How to maintain authentic relationships with people as a public figure. Most people I meet now know a lot more about me than I will ever get to know about them.
0: Awesome. So fans?
1: Uh, I don't have fans, I don't think. I think I have friends I haven't met yet.
0: Oh, okay, okay. That's great. That's great. Well, I, I, think, I think you do have fans. I like that redefinition, though.
1: <laughs>
0: I, I like that. I like that. I was about to, I was about to Twitter tease you and say, if you're Mike's fan, I want you to tweet him right now. But I won't, I won't <laughs> torture you with the fan responses. Uh, we have a very active Twitter base. Uh, and then, in, lastly, I would say, or the questions I would ask for you is, uh, for you in this next journey, what do you hope that? Uh, people who are searching for faith, people who are spiritual in this world, what do you hope people um, move towards? What do you hope us as a culture, when it comes to spirituality and our experience of God, what do you hope we move towards? What do you hope is the future of faith communities and the future of the faith conversation in, in the world?
1: An embrace of the most simple and basic idea in all of our theology. God is love. Can we become communities of people completely focused on the expression of divine love to all of humanity.
0: Well, I love that. Love that. Well, Mike, I think what's amazing is uh, the way that you sort of boldly and fiercely go into these conversations and dive right in. And uh, you're finding a way to help people add scientific language to their faith and faith language to their science. And I find that the uh, the intersection that is so desperately needed right now. And so I'm such a huge fan of you, fan of your work. And uh, for you, typically Hazardousians, uh, I want you to find Mike in a couple ways. And then, Mike, you can chime in here. One is the book we've been talking about. And much of the stories that Mike shared today is in a book called Finding God in the Waves, How I Lost My Faith and Found It Again Through Science. And you can uh, find this book anywhere books are sold uh, or download it or get the print version so that you can keep highlighting. As I have, uh, it's written a foreword by Mr. Rob Bell, who's been on the podcast and is a great friend of ours. And he's uh, also the
1: preacher from the story.
0: Oh, he's the preacher from the story. Okay, from good. The story. Well, there, oh, there it is. Okay, well then, uh, guys, you've already got some insight in the uh, into the into the pages as you read them. And then Mike also has a podcast that's just a blast to listen to called Ask Science, Mike. And it's a great space to find uh, information and a lot of the articulation that you've even heard today is he answered my questions, that he answers your questions through Twitter and email. And so I want to encourage you to dive into that because I find Mike a great resource for some of those things that just don't seem to line up from a faith or science perspective or they seem to be in contradiction. So, Mike, anything else, any other way you want people to find you or any other way that our uh, podcast community can be helpful to you and sort of the voice you're bringing out in the world?
1: I mean, the easiest way to find myself is to just go to AskScienceMike.com. It kind of links out to everywhere from there. Uh, and if you're not sold on the book yet, just go to FindingGodInTheWaves.com. And I've got a series of videos where I explore the book topic by topic. So hopefully, we can convince you it's worth your time.
0: Amazing. Well, Mike, you have the, you have an amazing accent and this really sultry voice. I think I need to, <laughs> I need to get like a sleep app that you had just as you talking and like, just like calms me down. Cause you well, have that's this a
1: pretty common request, Actually, very
0: <laughs> centering voice. I'm like, man, can I get my headspace app to be your voice instead of that <laughs> British guy? Uh, well, thank amazing. you so much for joining us, Mike. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to watching this book touch a lot of people's lives and go lots of different places as you uh, embrace this adventure of becoming a more, and more public figure. And uh, I'm just behind you and love your voice out there in the world.
1: Thank you so much. And thanks for having me on the show. It was such a blast.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, Mike. And have a great one.